But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. It's also going to be up on the screen, so don't worry if you don't have a Bible or a phone or whatever. So as I said, we're deep into the Sermon on the Mount at this point, and we've come to the place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins to talk about our money and how we should handle money within his kingdom community. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what what it looks like to live life within this kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. And now he's talking about how we handle money, how we handle wealth or lack thereof, for that matter. Last gathering, we talked about uh, how Jesus talks about money constantly. Does anyone remember about what percentage of Jesus' teachings are related to money in some way? A little bit less. Uh, yeah, 25. Just under 25% of Jesus' teachings are related to money in some way. So one out of four, that's a lot. If we talked about money, one out of four gatherings, uh, you all would probably stop coming after a little while. I think it would get a little tiresome. Uh, obviously, money matters a lot to Jesus. It matters a lot to him. He talks about it quite a bit. The main point that I made last time, uh, and this is up on the screen, the main point I made was that Jesus' ultimate goal is that his kingdom people would be known for their radical generosity. His ultimate goal is that his kingdom people would be known for their radical generosity. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to build on that point. He's going to get to the real heart of the issue that is behind a lack of generosity. It's not an issue of action or willpower. A lack of generosity is an issue of the heart. That's what he's going to talk about today. So, So today, it's like part two. It might be a little bit less practical than our last All Family Gathering. But what Jesus is going to uncover here is really important as we go on this journey towards towards generosity in our own lives. So if you're ready, um, we're going to dive in. Let me pray, and then I'll, uh, we'll start working through this passage. Father, I just invite you right now, God, to remove anything uh, in our hearts or our minds that would keep us from hearing what you have to say to us. I pray that each one of us here in this room um, could hear your voice in a unique way, that you could challenge us and encourage us in the ways that we need to be challenged and encouraged, and that most importantly, your word would shine through um, in these next 15 to 20 minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So Jesus says, and you can go back, Jesus says your, your eyes can be one, uh, one of two ways. One of two ways. They can either be, I'm going to write this up, healthy or unhealthy. Healthy or unhealthy. So what is a healthy or unhealthy eye? Well, depending on the Bible that you have in front of you, if you're looking at one, uh, you may have a helpful footnote here that says down at the bottom of the page, it would say a healthy eye implies generosity and an unhealthy eye implies stinginess. 
So Jesus is using a common figure of speech here that refers to the way that you view the world. Anyone hearing Jesus in this time would know what he's talking about when he says healthy or unhealthy eye. It has to do with the way that you view the world. Either you view the world through the lens of generosity or the lens of stinginess. Okay, we have a modern term for these things, and that is an abundance mentality. Or, can anyone guess what the other one is? Scarcity, right. A scarcity mentality. Abundance mentality or scarcity mentality. So if your eyes are healthy, then you see the world as a place of abundance and potential, where there's enough to go around to meet everyone's needs and then some. Because you see the world as a place of abundance, you don't need to hoard or store up resources, wealth, and possessions. You trust that God will provide what you need when you need it. So you live a life characterized by simplicity and generosity. In contrast, if your eyes are unhealthy, then you see the world as a place of scarcity, where resources and opportunities are limited. There's not enough to go around, so you hoard resources and possessions, and you live, you live in competition rather than cooperation with your neighbors. You do not trust in God's provision for your needs, and as a result, your life is characterized by stinginess and greed. Stinginess and greed. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. What does a lamp do? Gives light, right? It lights up, it illuminates, okay? So, so the way you see the world around you, either through an abundance mentality or a scarcity mentality, illuminates or reveals what is inside you, okay? In other words, this is a matter, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. The eye is the lamp of the body. So we tend to think that having an abundance mentality or a scarcity mentality is a matter of circumstance, right? If you have a lot or you are wealthy, then it's easy to have a positive outlook on the world as a place of abundance. And if you have very little, then you're likely to have a more negative view on the world as a place of scarcity. But Jesus disagrees with that assumption. He says your perspective on the world is not about your external circumstance. It is about your internal heart condition. The way you see the world around you reveals what's inside you. So last gathering, I mentioned um, some sociological and psychological research that ties a lifestyle generosity, giving away resources rather than storing them up, with improved overall health and well-being. So improved mental, emotional, relational, physical, spiritual health were all tied to habits of regular generosity. The research also indicates that an increase in wealth and possessions over a certain amount was in fact tied to a decline in overall health and well-being. Sociologists Christian Smith and Hillary Davison, this is up on the screen for you, they sum up the data in this way. They see, say people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result of not spending more money on oneself, but rather giving money away to others. The data examined here showed this not to be simply a nice idea, but a sociological scientific fact. When you examine the empirical evidence, it turns out that the Western formula of more money equals more happiness is simply not true. 
So who would have thought that Jesus had a better grasp on reality than our modern culture? Our perspective of the world, having a healthy eye or unhealthy eye, is not tied to our external financial circumstance in the way that we tend to think it is. It is much more aligned with our internal condition, our mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual health. The eye is the lamp to the body. The way we see the world reveals our heart. So last gathering, we said that Jesus' ultimate goal for his kingdom people is that they would be known for radical generosity. Now, Jesus says radical generosity is not something we just do. It's rooted in holding a belief that the world that God made and placed us in is a place of abundance. According to Jesus, having an abundance mentality, it's not a matter of circumstance. It's a matter of, of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. So, so that includes what we desire. Okay, what we long for, what we love. It's in, some, in summary, it's a matter of what we worship. Which is why Jesus says in verse 24, up on the screen, you can see no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You'll see Eugene Peterson here puts it a little bit more bluntly in his translation. He says, you cannot worship two gods at once. Loving God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You cannot worship God and money. So here, when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about worship. You cannot worship God and money. So... I think, and I'm sure if you've been around church, you probably have heard this verse. And, and, and in my experience, we often read this verse out of context and we miss the full picture of what Jesus is saying. Okay, I've always thought, like, if you're not looking for extravagant wealth, you know, big houses, expensive vacations, uh, yachts or whatever, like, then, then you're not worshiping money. But, but Jesus says, if you have an unhealthy eye, if you see the world as a place of scarcity, then you have a distorted view of, of the world, and it reveals something deeper. It reveals misplaced worship. The core issue is not your perspective on the world. That is just a symptom. According to Jesus, the root of the issue is what you worship. A scarcity mindset reveals misplaced worship. It reveals that worship is placed in, in money or wealth. Now understand that just, be, just because you have more of a scarcity mindset of the world doesn't mean that you aren't worshiping God or you're not authentic in your desire to worship God, but you're also worshiping money. Okay, you are looking to money for things that can only come from God, comfort, security, assurance, identity, freedom, whatever it may be. There's this tension going on inside of you between God and money, and Jesus says that can't last. Eventually money will win out. I love what Richard Rohr says. He's a Franciscan priest. He says, it's all too easy to fall in love with money, to be captivated by the pursuit of money, and to pro project every manner of meaning and value onto money. If money is not explicitly dethroned, it will never be neutral for long. It will demand allegiance. We make a great deal of the Ten Commandments, yet I wonder if you have ever heard a single sermon in your life on the Tenth Commandment. As a Catholic... I never have. It's the very name of the main game, yet it would never occur to us as a problem, much less a sin. He writes, coveting our neighbor's goods, which stems from a scarcity mindset, what you have is not enough, is now called shopping, advertising, and contributing to the American economy. Amazing how the capital sin of greed has been transmuted into a major virtue.
You cannot serve two masters. You cannot worship God and money because eventually money will win your full allegiance. Our perspective on the world reveals what we worship. Okay, scarcity mindset, money, abundance mindset, God. And a scarcity mindset manifests itself in a lack of generosity, a constant concern about what you have and what you don't have. And Jesus is saying that reveals misplaced worship. Okay, so, so how should we see the world? Okay, what does it look like to have an abundance mentality that breeds generosity? Well, Jesus lays that out for us beginning in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Always a great thing to hear if you're worried about money. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Then why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even King Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and are t- tomorrow are thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, let's be honest. All right, who reads this and thinks Jesus sounds a little bit out of touch? Like, I know I do. All right, a little bit out of touch with the reality here. All right, Jesus is painting a picture of the world that is completely foreign to us. He is describing the world as this place of life and abundance that stems from generosity, the generosity and attentiveness that God has for even the smallest and most, most insignificant things, like grass and flowers. And, and sure, like we read this and it sounds nice and, and, and we want to believe this, but so often do we look out on our world and we see scarcity and death. We see poverty and starvation and disease and corruption and violence. And sure, like the birds and the flowers and the grass, they seem to get by okay. And, and I think we'd all say we believe that God cares more about us than he does those things. But then why does the world look so very different than the way Jesus is describing? He says the natural default of the world is abundance. The natural uh, uh, way that the world is, is is life, okay? Why does the world often look so different? Where is God in a place of scarcity? Well, I think it would be helpful to just have a quick overview of of the story of the Bible as it relates to abundance and scarcity. We're going to skim through really quick, but this is the story that Jesus would have grew up hearing, the story that really informs everything he says and does. Okay, so in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world as an act of generous creative love. If you read through these first two chapters of your Bible, you see that over and over again, it says that God made and God gave. God made and God gave. God gave plants. God gave life. God gave his image to humans. We get to Genesis 3, and this mysterious creature called the serpent shows up in the story, and he begins to sow doubt about God's goodness and generosity in the minds of humans. God's holding back from you. Like, he, don't, he doesn't want you to eat from that tree because you'll be like him. Okay, don't, you can't trust this God. You have to redefine good and evil for yourself. That's the core of the temptation, to redefine God's, the vision that God gave you for the world for yourself. 
Humans buy into this temptation. Genesis 3 says they see that the tree was good for food. And this really important line, that it was pleasurable to the eyes. Notice how their perspective is changing. They're no longer focused on the abundance of all the things they've already been given. Instead, they are focused on their scarcity, the one thing they lack, and they want that. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, there's this really important phrase that, that keys us into to a shift in the story. It says, the woman took from the tree. She took, and then her husband took. Up to this point, we've been reading God gave, God gave, God gave, and now they took. This indicates a massive massive shift in the storyline from God generously giving to humans greedily taking. God giving life, giving blessings to humans taking their lives and their provision into their own hands, not trusting God and his provision, his vision for the world. This shift causes a rupture between heaven and earth, between God and his creation. And if you've read, if you try to read through the Bible, you'll know everything spirals from there. In Genesis 4, Cain is jealous with his brother Abel, so he takes Abel's life. And humans become increasingly greedy, increasingly envious, increasingly violent. They move further and further away from God's generous love and abundance. But the one thing that never changes in the story is God's generosity. He continues to offer grace and love and move towards his humans and and offer them abundant blessing. We reach Genesis 12 and God calls a man named Abraham to be the conduit of God's, God's radical generosity to the world. He says to Abraham, I will, um, I will make a great nation out of you. I will bless you so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes it clear that the appropriate response to his generous blessing is radical generosity to others. But Abraham does okay for a little bit, but, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we just read story after story after story about how God's people, Abraham's descendants, fail to extend God's radical generosity to the world. They fail to live into their calling to bear God's image, one of creative, generous love. Instead, they continue to fall into the mindset of scarcity and greed. And this creates a world where the few, namely the strong and the powerful, have plenty, and the many, namely the weak and the powerless, have little to nothing. And this grieves God to see his world like this. Then Jesus enters into the scene and he rejects the world of scarcity that he was born into and he lives a life of complete dependence on receiving love and blessing from the Father. And like a well that overflows with water, he generously gives away everything that he receives, even his own life. Jesus lives a life of abundance and generosity, even though his circumstance was one of poverty, oppression, and significant hardship. And his generosity radically transformed the world. And then he sends us out, his kingdom community, out into the world to do the same, not by our own power, but in the power of his love and his spirit, as Aaron just 
talked about earlier. Jesus believes that if his kingdom people would embrace lives of worship to God and radical generosity towards one another, then the world around them would actually become the world of abundance that God made it to be. We know that this can happen and will happen because we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 32, up on the screen here, we see that all the believers were united in heart. This is, this is Jesus' church, his kingdom community, right after he departs from them. They're in Jerusalem. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. And this important line right here in verse 34, there was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So they had a perspective of abundance. They had a perspective of abundance. They believed that everything they had was not their own. That perspective caused them to live lives of radical generosity. They shared everything they had. And their radical generosity caused a circumstance of scarcity. Okay, Ancient uh, Israel under the oppression of Rome, a, a far greater scarcity than any of us have ever experienced. It created a, a circumstance of scarcity to revert to the world of abundance where there was no needy person among them. Not one. This is Jesus' vision for his kingdom. And it's available to us. But it's going to require that we reject the worship of money that leads to greed and stinginess and press into the worship of God that leads to abundance and generosity. So Jesus closes this passage. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the non-believers, run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows you need them, and he will provide them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek, seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Worship God, engage with his kingdom community with generosity and love, and he will provide everything you need. This is not an individual uh, uh, commission that Jesus is giving us. It's very much a communal mission. He is picturing a community of people living lives characterized by radical generosity, living lives that, that believe that the world is the world of abundance that God made it to be. So in close, again, I said I wasn't going to give a ton of practical things, but I do just want to leave you with two things here really quick. Okay, these are things I just invite you to prioritize. Number one, it's up on the screen, prioritize worship. Okay, remember, this isn't a matter of action. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of worship. What do you worship? We're going to do that right here in a minute. Actually, Coburn and Megan, you can come on up here. Um, my favorite part of the gathering is the time of worship. We always prioritize that. But, but I also encourage you to cultivate rhythms and habits of worship in your everyday life. Not just here once every two weeks, okay, but in your everyday life. In honor of Brooks and Allie's recent wedding, I'm going to quote Allie's favorite book by James K.A. Smith. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our love. 
Worship isn't just something we do. It is something where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. That you are what you love by James K. Smith. It reach, worship retrains our hearts, reorients our hearts around God. We recently devoted four all-family gatherings to habits that draw us into the presence of God and form us in the image of Jesus. And, and I would just encourage you, if, if you didn't consider making changes to your life as we moved through those practices, I just invite you to go back. They're all on the podcast um, and just listen to them. It starts with, with the one titled, Who Am I Becoming? We talked about fasting. We talked about prayer. Uh, we spent a gathering talking about developing your own rule of life, which I actually have the worksheets from that on the bar. You can grab one, take it home when you listen to it. Uh, but, but if we want God to change our hearts and our minds, we have to structure our daily lives around habits of worship, habits of space where God in, we encounter God and he does that work on us. It's not something we do to ourselves. It's we just create space for God to do work on us. And we need to do that. So prioritize worship. The second is prioritize generosity. Your last gathering gave you five practical ways to, to step into generosity. Again, I'll leave that to you to go back and listen to those. But we have to realize that generosity is a non-negotiable for Jesus. It's non-negotiable. Time and time again, Jesus makes it very clear that his kingdom people will be known for their generosity. So if we say we are following Jesus, we can't afford not to be generous. We can't afford not to be generous. Like I said last week or last gathering, for most of us, this will be a lifelong journey of figuring out, figuring out what does radical generosity look like in my life. But it is a journey we must go on. We must. Okay? Jesus doesn't give us, give us an out for that. So prioritize generosity. So if you would stand with me, we're going to worship now.